um, who uh, are utilizing our children's ministry. We run that through first grade. You are more than welcome to take your children back there now. For those of you whose children stay in the service, just again, by way of reminder, they are most welcome here. If they get a little fussy, you can take them to uh, the lobby area, get them settled down, come back in. Dads, that's a great way to serve mom, by the way, if you're able to do that so she can listen to uh, the sermon. Uh, we have uh, been going for some time through our confession of faith. We read it just paragraph by paragraph before uh, the sermon each week, and we've been looking in chapter 11 and what the confession has to say about the doctrine of justification, and I want to read just the last paragraph in that chapter. Uh, next week, we will move to the chapter that talks about adoption, the doctrine of adoption. But paragraph 6, it, it says this, In all these ways... The justification of believers, so it's assuming everything, all the ground that we've covered so far reading this, but in all these ways, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was exactly the same as the justification of believers under the New Testament. And so in other words, there are no two ways to be made right with God. The way to be made right with God um, uh, is through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And so those saints that died prior to the incarnation of Christ looked forward to the Messiah, looked forward to uh, God redeeming a people to himself. And those of us who live uh, beyond that, we look back grateful that God was true to his word and that he did set things right. Amen? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 13, which is the last chapter in the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at this morning verses 5 and 6, but I'm going to kind of move around uh, this morning to different uh, texts in Scripture, both uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because uh, we're going to talk about... Um, this issue of contentment and our wrestling with that and the, the circumstances in our lives being uh, drivers for amplifying the discontentment that resides in our hearts. And so this is um, more so going to be a type of biblical survey on this issue of contentment. But our foundational text is Hebrews 13, verses 5 and six, and, and there is a lot of, um, uh, and we're not going to spend time on this this morning, but there is a lot of um, Old Testament that the, I, the book of Hebrews is, is full of the Old Testament uh, being applied to Christ, but we see the Old Testament being utilized even in just our couple of verses here. Um, but let me read it, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will dive into this. The word of the Lord says this, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, this is the Old Testament quote, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, quoting the psalmist here, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me? Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to open your word again as your church. And we ask, God, that you would help us by your spirit to think through contentment in a way that honors you. And God, I pray that this would, 
would not stay just theoretical for us, but that, Lord, by your strength, we would seek to apply it. So, God, help us to apply your word by your grace and your strength. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we, we have looked at the, uh, the, the book of Hebrews a, a few times over even just the last several weeks, but uh, I want to give you, uh, or, or rather remind you of a little bit of the, the, the context um, to this particular, um, this, this book, or rather this sermon that would have been um, preached uh, or read amongst the gathering of Hebrew Christians, right? And the, these, these Hebrew Christians, uh, they were experiencing different forms of persecution, uh, and uh, persecution for becoming Christians, for, uh, for leaving Judaism, or for seeing how Judaism was always intended to terminate in Christ, right? That there was a certain movement in the Old Testament, and that Christ is the fulfillment, the long-awaited-for Messiah um, that uh, was promised, in the Old Testament. Uh, they were, for their belief in Christ as Messiah and the commitments that come with the belief that Christ is the Messiah, they were put out of their communities. They weren't allowed in the synagogues. They were living ostracized from, from a community that they were once familiar with and, and, and depended on in, in very real, tangible ways. They were experiencing economic hardships and, and the, the concerns that would come from economic hardships. And, and I could imagine them thinking, and perhaps you can too, um, not, not from an experiential place, but, but imagine being cut off in that way. Imagine experiencing the economic crises that they were perhaps facing and, and asking a real question, how do we survive this? Right? How, how do I put food on the table? And just being a Christian in the first century, it was costly, right? It was costly. You not only became ostracized from the community that you once enjoyed, but you could experience physical torture. Your family could experience physical torture. You and your family could, could be murdered, could be martyred for your faith, right? And we have historical evidences of that. We know what happened to many first century Christians, and we know what has happened throughout history to Christians for their commitment to Christ. But one commentator, he, he summarizes the, the struggle of the Jewish Christian, of, of, of those who would have been the recipients of this sermon or this book or this, this letter. He says this, he says, the student of Hebrews, which is us this morning, uh, can't but observe that no men were ever called upon to endure greater sacrifices, to surrender more precious hopes, to bear deeper disappointments than the original recipients of this epistle. Men who had lived in light of the Old Testament, men who had known the joy of a noble ritual, men who had habitually drawn near to God, men who had welcomed Christ in whom they believed that the glory of Israel should be consummated. These early Jewish Christians were most expectantly required to face what seemed to them to be the forfeiture of all that they held dearest. 
And this is why the, 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 the preacher to the Hebrew Christians, this is why he labored so much to demonstrate to them the superiority of Christ, to demonstrate to them the, the supremacy of Christ, how he's so much better, greater than what they lost, right? What they were losing and what they would eventually lose, right? And it's reminiscent to me of the Apostle Paul sharing a bit of his testimony with the Church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. You'll have to turn there. I think we have it up on the screen here. But the Apostle Paul, given some of his testimony, he says this. He says, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And as you read your Bible, you pick up on this kind of theme, right? this theme of suffering, suffering specifically for your commitment to Christ. Right? You pick up this idea that, that trouble just sort of follows Christians, right? It's, it's just kind of unavoidable. And as you follow that thread... You, you see how Christians were to endure the various sufferings they experienced by denying their flesh, not following in the midst of sufferings the desires of, of, of the heart that would ultimately lead right, down the path of least resistance, which is a path away from Christ, right? not a path to Christ. Instead, you see, as you follow the biblical narrative, you see those that are seeking to endure. You see those that are embracing the cross and enduring the sufferings and the hardships, and they're doing that, right, not perfectly. And thank God we don't have these kind of just perfect, perfect templates in Scripture, right? We see clearly the failings of, of other believers, but we, we see this progression of endurance in the midst of hardships and in the midst of sufferings through this gazing at Christ. And we know that Christ, he plainly taught about this particular way of life. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26 says this, then Jesus, he said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, <clears throat> you can't follow yourself Right? You, you can't follow your desires. You aren't the Savior. You're not worth following, right? You're not your own shepherd. You don't know the way. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. And he goes on, verses 25 and 26. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Kids, 
That's what we call a paradox. Right? It seems like a, it's a contradictory statement. Lose your life to find your life. If you try to save your life, you will actually lose your life. Right? This is the walk of a Christian. This is the path of a believer. This is what we could label as a Christ-oriented walk. We see elsewhere, Jesus says this. John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I've spoken to you that in me, right, in Christ, you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. And get this, but be of good cheer. But be of good cheer, right? I've overcome the world. That's where the cheer comes from, right? Christ says, I've overcome the world. So if you're looking to your circumstances for peace, but if you're looking to the political landscape for peace, if you're looking to a relationship for peace, if you're looking to finances for peace, if you're looking to a good career to find peace, if you're looking to good health to find peace, if you're looking for a, a nice home on a big piece of property because you think you'll make a great homesteader for peace. Just kidding. You won't find it. You won't find it. Right? That comes and that goes. Right? That ebbs and that flows. And they were never intended by your creator to give you peace, which is... Peace is inseparable from contentment, and contentment is found... In Christ. Instead, here's a better perspective to have, right? Think in this world, okay, living this side of eternity, right, as it relates to all the things that can be taken and manipulated, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. But in the midst of the circumstances that are beyond our control, right, Jesus says that in him you can have peace which means that apart from him, you can't have peace. Right? So Jesus says in this life there will be trouble. Right? Paul says that he lost a lot for the sake of, of coming to Christ. Right? The Hebrew Christians, they lost a lot for their embracing Jesus as the Messiah. And these are all hardships. And when you are looking to other things in your life or stuff in your life, and that stuff can be manipulated and that stuff can be taken, when it is manipulated, when it is taken, there goes your peace. There goes your contentment. There goes your security. There goes the things that make you feel like you're safe, when in reality, those aren't the things that provide safety or peace or security. It's suffering this side of eternity. Again, as we're looking at the words of Jesus, as we're looking at the testimony of Paul, as we think through the circumstances around the Hebrew Christians, and really, as we just, again, pay attention to biblical narrative, pay attention to church history, pay attention to what's going on around the world for our brothers and sisters in Christ, suffering should be expected. It should be expected. We shouldn't welcome it, right? We shouldn't go and seek it out, but we shouldn't be surprised by it, and we shouldn't become embittered about it. Now, I want us even more so to see the, the, the correlation between suffering and contentment. 
because there's a, a real temptation toward discontentment when you're afflicted or when your stuff perhaps is taken from you, right? And, and, and that's certainly the temptation the Hebrew Christians were facing, right? It's, it's definitely the temptation, again, brothers and sisters around the world and throughout history have faced. It's a temptation that you and I face, right? We experience hardship and, and we end up picturing ourselves in a, a different set of circumstances and, and that ends up driving our bitterness about our lot in life, you know, what's happened to us. I've told you this before, but I look at one of my roles as your pastor is to prepare you to suffer and to, to suffer well. When I look at my boys, uh, I think about that too. And suffering, it, it, it won't rob you of contentment, rob you of peace, if it's firmly fixed in Christ, right? And, and, and I know that that sounds like such a basic answer, but we don't live that way. That doesn't really animate us in the day in and day out of things, right? That doesn't really animate us when we're not getting something that we want, right? And, and suffering, it, it comes in different forms in our lives, doesn't it? Right? Some of you experience suffering in such a way. Suffering can come and it's something that's inflicted upon you, right? It's not your fault that it's happening, but it's inflicted upon you by, by someone else, right? And as many of you know, we see that increasingly in Western culture, right? Our brothers and sisters and other places around the world have experienced it for some time, right? And guess what? The church has thrived in the midst of it, by the way, right? But some of what we experience here in the U.S., right, uh, be, being a Christian uh, uh, costing you something, that's newer to us, isn't it? It's newer to us. And if our thinking isn't being shaped by the Word of God, if we're not looking at the Scriptures dependent upon the Spirit of God to help us, we'll crumble. We'll crumble. There's a book getting ready to be published at the end of the month by a guy named Aaron Wren, and, and he wrote an essay a couple of years back uh, called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. And, and in the article, he surveys how, evangelical, how evangelicalism was received in Western society over the decades and how rapidly things have changed just in the last several years, again, here in America. And let me just read a portion of the article to you. These are the three different worlds. The first world was positive world, and that's pre-1994, okay? Everything prior to 1994, positive world. And he says this, society at large retains in this world a mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as a good church-going man remains part of being an upstanding citizen, Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer. Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society, and violating them can bring negative consequences. Okay, so that's positive world. The second world is neutral world. 94, he labels this 94 to around 2014. Society takes a neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status but is not disfavored. 
Being publicly known as a Christian is neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. Christian moral norms retain some residual effect. And then he has what's called negative world, 2014 to present. Society has come to a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. It brings negative consequences. Now, I may tweak some of this slightly, but I do find it to be a proper assessment as it relates to where we are as a society, what we now live in, a negative world uh, as it relates to evangelicalism, its view of evangelicalism, one that views commitments to, to Christ and the obligations that come with being someone who wants to honor his word is negative and even as a threat to a broader way of life. And, and the sooner that we realize that as Christians, the better, right? The sooner we realize that, the better. And not in the type of way that we are embittered, right? Not in the type of way in which we are angry, but in such a way that honors the Lord, right? We're to live and make progress in this world with the joy of the Lord in our hearts, despite our circumstances, right? Hear the words of Christ again. In this world, you will find trouble. Be happy, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, right? I've overcome the world. Now, that's one type of suffering, right? As it relates to commitments of Christ being something that, um, that brings on a type of suffering that's unavoidable. Again, not the type of Christian that's going out looking to, for this sort of suffering, but one that comes because of your commitments to Christ. But another type of suffering, some of the suffering you may experience, <clears throat> it might be more physical, it might be more physical, right? You have a broken body, and, and this is just the result of living in a fallen world, and, and you're grappling with how to suffer in a way that honors the Lord. And I think that we see this with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. It says this, "...unless I should be exalted above measure..." By the abundance of the revelations, right? The, the Apostle Paul talking about his own ministry here. He says, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me, lest I be, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, this was his answer. And again, we looked at this in our assurance of pardon. My grace is what? Sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, says that word, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Right? And then the Apostle Paul he moves to talk about other types of suffering. He says, therefore, right? So he he applies this to other areas beyond physical limitations and physical weaknesses. He says, I'm gonna take pleasure in my infirmities. I'm going to take pleasure in reproaches and in needs and in persecutions and in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And again, it's not rejoicing in the suffering itself, 
right? Suffering was introduced in this world because of the fall, right? It, it would be wrong for us to call suffering good, yet the Apostle Paul, he kind of turns this on its head, right? This is what we could consider gospel logic here, right? The sufferings that the enemy wants to use to destroy you and drive you away from Christ when properly thought about can exalt Christ, right? Can exalt, exalt Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul was so excited about here. This messenger of Satan that he wrestled with, right? It's certainly a reminder of the fall. Things aren't working the way they were originally designed. This messenger of Satan, this word from Satan, attempting to discourage Paul, right? Trying to cause him to despair in an effort to thwart God's advancement of the gospel through the apostle Paul. Right, and Paul, he prays three times. Listen, God doesn't heal him. God could heal him, but God doesn't heal him. Instead, the Lord reminds him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. What is this if not the Lord saying, be content in me? Right, be content in me. I will give you the strength that you need. Don't despair. God's glory was showcased in Paul's perseverance despite this thorn. In fact, the Apostle Paul, again, he turns that struggle on its head. He can speak proudly of these sufferings because the power of Christ rests on him and because it is exalting to Christ that he's strong though he's weak. Now, I want to pull some of this together for us. In order to endure where we're headed as a society in order to endure the weaknesses in your life, the thorns, it will require biblical contentment. It will require biblical contentment. And biblical contentment is found by resting in and trusting in and being satisfied in the Lord. And I think of the psalmist The the preacher to the Hebrews quotes in the text that I read, Hebrews chapter 13. This is it, Psalm 118.6. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What can mere mortals do to me? Right When we compare the obstacles that we face, we compare them to our triune God, they're small. They're small. When I think about the biggest obstacle that we face, which was trying to set things right, cosmically speaking, because of our sin, God did that. God set things right in Christ. He made us right. He put us in right relationship with himself. Can he not take care of every lesser thing that we face? Every lesser obstacle that we face? As the winds and waves that are our circumstances, as they intensify, right? The difference between persevering and thriving in Christ and retreating and giving up and despairing, it has to do with the contentment in the Lord. 
It has to do with contentment in the Lord. Contentment in the Lord, contentment in Christ is the need of the hour. It's the need of the hour. And that's the point that the, the, the preacher to the Hebrew Christians is trying to make on this issue. Right? The Hebrew Christians, they're being tempted to give up. They're, they're wrestling with contentment. Their troubles seem bigger than God. Right? They're wrestling with finding their joy and finding their happiness and their delight in something or someone other than the triune God. This is why you have sober warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. Warnings like this, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. Beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart uh, leading you to depart from the living God. But exhort one another daily... While it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we've become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it's said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is a daily task according to the author of Hebrews here. Now, I've taken us a lot of different places. But here's what I want us to see first, right? I want us to see contentment's enemy. It, it's, it's nemesis and it's coveting. It's having a, a covetous spirit, right? Coveting is what is behind discontentment, right? It's what drives discontentment. And it's especially a temptation that we face when we're suffering. It's especially a temptation that we face when we're suffering. And so if you're taking notes and kids, if you're taking notes alongside of your parents, you can jot this down. Coveting is idolatry, and it leads to cowardice and misery. Okay, coveting is idolatry, and it leads to cowardice and misery. Let's get back to our passage in Hebrews. Look back at the first part of verse 5 in Hebrews chapter 13. The preacher says, let your conduct be without covetousness. That's what he says. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Right? And as I said, uh, coveting is contentment's opposite. It's contentment's opposite. It's underneath the discontentment. If you aren't content, you're coveting. You, you have a grass is greener on the other side sort of mentality. And if you're coveting, you're breaking the 10th commandment, right? This is grounded in the moral law of God. So let's consider this more for a moment because we really need to see the reality of coveting. I want us to see the, 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 the ugliness of of, 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 of not repenting of the sin of coveting. And, and as I mention just the, the, these different things as it relates to coveting, you'll see some of the overlap. You'll see how they're related. First, consider that coveting really is idolatry. It really is idolatry. A breaking of the second table of the law, it all, always follows a breaking of the first table of the law, right? The, the first four commandments. Now, the covetous person has a worship disorder, right? The person who is obsessing over what he doesn't have but needs in order to find peace or happiness or joy or contentment is worshiping someone or something other than the triune God. And, and paying attention to the language that we use, it can often help us in diagnosing this, whether it's the words of our inner thoughts or the words that we actually verbalize. And again, the sufferings that are, are maybe circumstances often draw this stuff out of our hearts, right? Our circumstances can often help us to see the idols of the heart that in 
you know, when things seem to be going well, we're not aware of, right? It's not on our radar. But do you, do you often find yourself thinking or saying, I need fill in the blank, and it's something that's not God, right? I need this, or I demand this. Right? How about this? What is it that you get angry over if you don't get it? What is it that you don't have now, whether that be health or some sort of material prosperity or some sort of relation, r- relationship um, patch that, that, that or you want a relationship to be a certain way and it's not a certain way and you find yourself getting angry because you're not getting it. What, what is it that drives you to discouragement? What is it that drives you to despair? Right? What is it that you want so bad that you're willing to sin in order to get it? Coveting is idolatry. It's a worship disorder. And if you don't mortify this sin, it, it's, gonna, it's just going to grow and fester. And when suffering hits, if you're in a season of life, that isn't one that would be characterized by suffering, when the suffering hits, the fruit that a covetous heart will bear is indicative of that of an idolater. Second, coveting, it turns us against one another. It turns us against one another. That was one of the issues that James was addressing in James chapter 4. Just the first three verses I'll read to you quickly. What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. James does a deep dive. He goes underneath the surface. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you're asking it the wrong way to spend it on your passions. So coveting, it it turns us against one another. Right? When there's fighting, when there's quarreling, when there's unrest, right? there's something that the heart is demanding. And it's not finding, the heart is not finding satisfaction and peace in the triune God. Third, covetousness is behind apostasy. It's behind apostasy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. Again, I read this to you at our confession of sin. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it it is certain that we carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these things we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which which drown men in destruction and perdition. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And then get this, for which some have strayed away from the faith in their greediness, and they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. That's what Paul tells Timothy, consequently tells the church of Ephesus, right? When your heart has been taken captive through coveting, through discontentment, can eventually leave you to a place where you abandon your profession. So, we see that covetousness, it, it is contentment's opposite. Right? It, it, it makes us cowards, and the path that it puts us on is ultimately a path of misery. Right? It's significant. Paul says that, that the, the person is pierced through with many sorrows. 
right? And, and, and James mentions fighting and quarreling and, and even murder here. Um, that's a path of misery. Right? It's not one that we should want to be on, yet we, we don't follow the covetous, the, we, don't, we don't look at the, the, the covetous spirit that we often nurture as being on that type of destructive, unhealthy path. And again, when suffering hits, when things go sideways, when it costs you something to be a Christian or when your health fails you, if your peace, if your trust, if your rest, if you're not content in Jesus Christ, everything crumbles. It all crumbles. Secondly, last thing, biblical contentment is found, right? And hopefully we've seen this already. It is found in the triune God alone, and it produces comfort, courage, and hope. It produces comfort, courage, and hope. Look back at verse 5 on through verse 6 in Hebrews 13 again. All right, be content with such things as you have. Okay, so in other words, don't be focused on what you've lost. All right, don't be focused on what you've lost. <clears throat> and he goes on, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right? Just first a caveat here, and it, it may be one I should have mentioned earlier, but biblical contentment, it's not passive. And it's not lazy. It's not slothful. It's not non-advancing. Right? Sometimes people may seem content, but they're actually just irresponsible and lazy. Right? So, so don't mistake the, the vice of the sluggard for the virtue that is biblical contentment. But true biblical contentment, it's God-centered. Right? Biblical contentment, it drives the advancement of the gospel in whatever circumstances that providence provides you. But think, think of the text because it's, it's helpfully simple. It's helpfully simple. Contentment is being thankful for what you have which again means that you're not fixated on what you don't have, okay? So contentment is being thankful for what you have, which means you aren't focused on what you don't have. How often do you complain? How often do you speak thankfully or gratefully to God, who's the giver of all good things, the, the, the one who even takes the bad things and uses them for his glory, and you're good, right? The content person trusts in the Lord. Right? The, Hebrew, the preacher to the Hebrews, he uses this phrase, for he himself, for he himself. Did that phrase stick out to you the first time that you read it? Right? It's an assertion of trust, right? The good king has said it, therefore we can trust, for he himself has said it. God himself has promised. And our God's unchanging, right? The content person is comforted by the presence of God. Right? The preacher reminds these suffering Hebrew Christians of, of the actual promise, which is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? Paul uses that same promise in his warning to Timothy and the church of Ephesus as it relates to the love of money. Right? So this teaches us that, that the source of contentment for both the suffering Christian and for the covetous Christian right, is the presence of God. Right? Do you value his presence in your life? Do you value his presence in your life above everything else? 
What's the result of the type of person who's thankful for what he has? What's the result of the type of person that, that trusts God's promise? Unchanging God's promise. What's the result of one who finds his joy and his happiness in the, the enduring, never-changing presence of the triune God? And this person is bold. This person is bold because he knows that God is on his side. Right? God is his helper. And in other words, there's a God-focused courage. Again, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? It's the preacher to the Hebrews quotes the psalmists. And when we face various sufferings, we say to ourselves, God is on our side. When we face various sufferings, we say to ourselves, God is on our side. When we fight the temptation of, 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 ha- of, of, of coveting, we remind ourselves that God is on our side. And this dispels fear, or rather it orders our fears. It actually helps us to rever- uh, in, 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 a, in a reverent way right, to fear God, who's in control of all of our circumstances and who, again, acted on our behalf to put us in right relationship with him. He addressed that. Can we not trust him? Can we not trust him? Will he himself not be our true peace? He is our peace. He is our contentment. And when we rest and trust in him, it makes us productive ambassadors for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing culture and in our ever-changing circumstances. I want to end on this. Picture just for a moment uh, a massive storm, okay? An inescapable flood. You, you, you see it coming, uh, or, or rather you, you should have seen it coming because you've heard about it many, many times. And the storm itself is a part of this cosmic shaking of everything that is in opposition to God, the creator. So you hear of this storm, right? The signs are all around you that that something big, that something significant is going to happen. And there's no way to stop what's coming, okay? It's, It's beyond your control. And this storm that's coming, this inescapable flood, it's a flood of suffering, It's a flood of your body breaking down. It's the flood of the the world, the flesh, and the devil telling you that the way out of the flood is by using your own materials or using your own strength or to build your own boat and to build that boat angry at God who would dare allow the storm to come in the first place. But there's also an ark. There's an ark. And God has said clearly that this ark is the only way to endure the storms that are sufferings and that are the temptations of life. It's the only way to not drown, to not be swept away by the storm. It's the only way that you won't perish. And that ark for us, as you know, is Christ, right? It's Christ. He's the way that we find contentment as Christians in a tumultuous cultural climate. He's the way that we find contentment as Christians who suffer at no fault of our own. He's the way that we find contentment in the midst of combating the temptations in this life. Christ is our ark. He's the only source of joy, true source of joy and of happiness and courage. 
now and forever, right? He alone is the source of our contentment. So let's go to him in prayer and confess that together. Lord, we thank you for time in your word. We thank you that Christ truly is our joy and our peace, our delight, our happiness, our contentment. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to make progress in not just confessing that, but living that way, Lord. Help us. We need your strength to do it. We're so forgetful so often. And so, Lord, we commit these things in prayer. And we thank you for the opportunity we've had to spend time together in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.